Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. I'm just excited for the first time ever people caring about a midterm election. That's what Donald Trump does to midterms. He makes them sexy again. (laughs) It's amazing. Make midterms great again. Hello, welcome to another special midterms episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Ellen Nilsson and Tara Golshan, two of the uh, superstars of the Vox Congress team, which is also the Vox Midterms team, because we, we don't have that many people. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Small team. And, and the midterms are about who will serve in Congress, so it's a, it's yeah, a, it's it's a, it's a natural synergy. And we're going to talk today about the great state of Texas, which for the first time in a long time is uh, become a sort of high-profile battleground state, and it's all thanks to the sexy charisma of Beto O'Rourke. Beto O'Rourke. Right? Yeah. People like it. People seem to really want to know more about him. <laughs> so he's, I mean, he's, he's, so this is a Democrat. Where is he from? Who's better? He's a congressman from El Paso, Texas. So it's this West Texas kind of isolated district. He is a progressive. He's not shy about that. People didn't really know about Better Rourke before this year. He was kind of like a rank and file Democrat. Um, he didn't, uh, he wasn't like making fireworks in the House by any means. But he has decided to launch this kind of long shot bid to unseat Ted Cruz in the Senate. And he has made himself relevant and because the race has suddenly become very competitive. And he's raising a boatload of cash. Yes, that too. <laughs> so he's a gambler, right? Like he got into the House by challenging an incumbent House Democrat. Yes, he did. Right? Which is unusual, right? Like not that many members got there by knocking off an incumbent of the same party, right? So he's he's in a hurry, right? He could have sat around in El Paso politics, waited his turn, but like he he wanted to run. And then he showed up and he's a backbench house Democrat, uh, which is an extremely boring job to have if you ever get to speak to backbench house Democrats. But at the same time, like it's a safe seat, right? So yeah. like the sensible thing to do, and, and it's Texas. So like the sensible thing to do if you're a Democrat with a safe seat in Texas is to like Sit Keep around, yeah, right? Stay there. And, like, try to chair a committee or do leadership or something like that. But instead, 
He's running against Ted Cruz. And, like, what gives anyone any sense that, like, that could work? Well, I think when he first got into the race, everyone thought it wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and then all of a sudden, I mean, Ted Cruz is incredibly unpopular. Um, he, has a, he has a pretty bad reputation of just being unlikable. And Beto kind of brought the blue wave to Texas. Like, he kept— showing up in different parts of the, the state where you th- wouldn't think a Democrat would bother showing up, that his whole thing is that he's driven to every county uh, mm-hmm. in the state. He has, like, bipartisan relationships with uh, another Texas Republican, Will Hurd, that and they've kind of— Who is a moderate Republican. Who, a moderate, yeah, who's a moderate Republican, who he's kind of used to show that he can, he can bridge divides in the state. And he has just made himself— someone that you cannot ignore. Like, he's right. in your face all of the time. Out and he's all over social media. I mean, he's, like, the thing that always got me about Beto from the beginning was just, like, he's constantly, like, filming himself, like, for Facebook Live, like, and, and on Instagram and on social media. Like, I feel like every moment of his life is, like, taped and and broadcast to this wide audience. And he's, like, he's, like, a cool guy. Yeah. Right? I think is like, integral in some ways to yeah. understanding— he used to be a he used to be a punk rock. Uh, right, he was in a band. Yeah, There's Texas a, Republicans tried to shame him by his for, punk rock days and his photo of him wearing a dress. Right, right. <laughs> there was band shaming. Um, there's like a video of him skateboarding in the Whataburger parking lot. And Ted Cruz is very. I mean, you don't want to exaggerate it because like Texas is a conservative state, but like Republican senators don't have a lot of good things to say about. Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz in 2012 ran a couple points behind Mitt Romney, even though he didn't really have an opponent at all. He's a kind of dislikable character. And Beto is like very likable. He's like the kind of politician that like people like want to think the best of him. And he kind of like shrugged off this like drunk driving thing. Yeah, he. That I think under ordinary circumstances might have bothered people. Right. I mean, he's very kind of the way he reacts to all of these attacks about him kind of being a cool kid who got into trouble <laughs> is just he's just upfront about it. So and I and yeah, people do shrug it off. They're well, we'll see if Republicans shrug it off. Right. But Democrats have shrugged it off. Well, but I mean, I think it's clear, right? If you're just assessing like better O'Rourke as a politician, right? Like he may lose this race. In fact, he probably will lose this race, but he is going to do better than like earlier Democrats running statewide. In Texas, right? Like, 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 if he loses, it's going to be because most people in Texas are conservative Republicans, not because there's like some problem with Beto O'Rourke. Right. I mean, the biggest Democrats in Texas will tell you that it's not a red state; it's a non-voting state. But Evan Smith of Texas Tribune told one of our colleagues, Dylan Scott at Fox, a smart quote of like, "Well, fine, if it is a non-voting state and it's red state, well, then it is a red state. Right. So that's <laughs> that's just the reality. So it is very likely that Beto O'Rourke will lose. But the polls are showing that if he does lose, he'll probably still lose by a much smaller margin than Democrats typically lose this seat. Right. And that could have a huge impact for other races in the state. And it could really help Democrats kind of rebuild their infrastructure in the state. And that's part of a bigger trend, right? So, like, Trump won Texas, and it wasn't that close. 
But it was much closer than it had been in 2012 or 2008. And Texas was suddenly closer than Iowa and closer than Ohio, um, which had been traditional swing states, right? So, like, this was a place where in 2016, Democrats had made some substantial gains and where Trump's brand of politics seemed less popular than Mitt Romney's or George W. Bush's. I mean, Democrats have had waves of hope for Texas. Right. Going back, I think, uh, I remember in the 2002 cycle, uh, they had what they thought was like a like a dream ticket in Texas statewide races and, and everybody lost. I mean, I guess primarily because Texas has, unlike most red states, right, Texas is both a huge Latino population and some really big cities in Dallas and Houston. Right. So those are like the building blocks of the Democratic Party. It's like non-white voters in big cities. And then also in Austin, a, a very large college town. So it's like the main pillars of like a Democratic Party win are kind of there. Uh, but then they, they lose all the races very badly. Well, and of course, especially in Austin, I wrote about this back in the spring, Texas Republicans gerrymandered Austin within an inch of its life to make sure that, that right. it wouldn't, you know, that such a blue progressive city wouldn't have much of a chance in sort of making a dent in the state's, you know, overall electoral chances. So Austin is the, itself is split into six different congressional districts, mm-hmm. only one of which is represented by a Democrat, Lloyd Doggett. And there have been numerous court cases about this, like, but some of this, you know, is by design. There are definitely, like, liberal pockets of Texas that just don't have the voting power of, of rural parts of Texas. Right. But also just, like, there are a lot of people in rural Texas, and they are very conservative. Yes, absolutely. Right? I mean, like, that's sort of been the issue here. But so what I mean, what's the Aurora Cruz campaign like been been about? Like, are there are there issues? Are there themes? Like, what what are they doing? So, Ted Cruz's whole campaign is that he is the true conservative that can win Texas, and that Texas is a red state and it's a conservative, and that Beto is just clearly too liberal for a state like Texas. And when you listen to a debate between Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz. You cannot find two two different candidates. Like, it's a really stark divide between these two men. When it comes to immigration, Ted Cruz is not for a path to citizenship. Better work is. When it comes to health care, Better work wants to move towards a single-payer system, and Ted Cruz wants to repeal Obamacare. It's like— Every single issue that you come to, there's a stark divide. And what we're seeing is that they're focusing a lot of the attention on turning out voters for their base. So you you see Ted Cruz kind of going towards a more Trumpian conservative angle, and you see Beto O'Rourke really kind of strongly signaling to people of color in the state during the debate. Every chance he got, he would talk about racial injustice and police brutality, and those were kind of his main priorities when he was explaining his worldview. So, I mean, what about this idea that, that Texas is a non-voting state? Like, like, what does that mean? I mean, it means that people don't. It, so Texas has one of the lowest voter turnout rates in the country. Right. So it's like 30 percent of the electorate is turning out to elect statewide seats. And one of the things that was kind of interesting was back during, like, the March primaries, like, people were looking to see if turnout was going to be, like, incredibly greater this year uh-huh. because, like, Beto was running. And it wasn't, right? Like, it was kind of, like— It, I mean, was, it was pretty normal. It was, it was pretty normal. Right. And, and of course, most political scientists will tell you don't 
read the tea leaves of turnout in primaries for the general, but it was one kind of data point of like, is the energy different this year? And it didn't seem different in the primaries. Now we'll see in November. But a lot of it has to do with the fact that the biggest population, for example, in 2016, like the biggest group of Latino voters were not of voting age or very young. And the biggest group of white voters were really old. And so like really old people vote all the time and really young people don't. And so those are just kind of the trends that Democrats are kind of facing when going into November. Wait, well, and so the the Latino turnout question in Texas in particular is important because to have a a realistic view of what it is, right, it's you you look at the Latino share of the population, it's quite high. Latino share of the electorate is very low. But some of that is because many of the Latinos in Texas are not citizens, and many of the Latino citizens in Texas are children. So, like, there's actually you can't do anything to boost that turnout. But then on top of that, just like nationally, I saw a good set of, of correlations about this. And, and African Americans and whites turn out at roughly similar rates. Among white people, college graduates turn out more than, than non-graduates. So if you take education into account, African Americans arguably voted a higher rate than white people. But Latinos, it's the opposite, right? It's a low educational attainment group. And then on top of that, it's a low turnout group. And that's true in Texas, but it's also true in Florida. It's true in, in California. And like Democrats have talked a lot about this, I feel like, in the past 15 years, but they haven't really done anything. Yeah. And it's been kind of interesting for me to see because I just a few weeks ago was out in Nevada um, covering the the Senate race out there. And that is an example of a state where the state party has really mastered the art of turning out Latino voters. And that's right. that's like the Harry Reid machine. Uh-huh. Um, but it's, you know, driven by a lot of grassroots groups that are, you know, run by Latino people in the community as people like numerous people were telling me, you know, it's like run by people of the community for the community trying to turn Latino voters out. And they are good at it and they're trying to increase it this year. But the thing that they told me, and, you know, this makes perfect sense, is that you have to be organizing all year round. Like, it's not, you can't just like, all right, a few months before the election, like, gotta go do our get out the vote efforts. It's like, you have to be in those communities every day all year round. And the infrastructure in Nevada is is so good and has been around for such a long time that they have this down. But I think in a lot of states like Texas, Florida, California, it's just that either this is not as big of a priority or people just sort of haven't kind of gotten this down the way that people in Nevada have. You have to remember in Texas, of course, there's more grassroots energy now. But I mean, the Democratic Party has been kind of really like running thin for a long time. And they didn't expect someone like Better O'Rourke to come in and do well. So it it did come to a shock to everybody. Although this is where I will say like energy really is different in in Texas. My wife's parents live out in a town called Ingram in, in Kerr County, which is a very conservative part of the state. Then also sort of typically for Texas, like not that politically mobilized. It's like both overwhelmingly Republican and also not really contested. And also you just have never like, I've never seen much signs or activity or or anything out there. But when I was there over the summer, I actually saw a bunch of better work signs, some signs for for Joseph Kopser, who's the uh, House candidate there. And, And then also, I mean, to be fair, like I saw signs for Ted Cruz and it is both more Democratic signs, but also more Republican signs. 
you can see that there's a contested election happening, which like right. hadn't been the case in the past. But also like there is now a Kerr County Democratic Party, you know, and it, the party has a new chair and they have a new website and they have a list of precinct captains and like they're not going to take over the Kerr County government. I think Trump won 70 percent there. But there's like there are people doing things Right. And They're it, at least organizing and preparing. Yeah. And, you know, also like every vote counts, right? Yeah. It's like even Cobser is, I think, probably going to lose. He's a long shot house challenger. But like there are bluer parts of that district than this one. But like they have people on the ground everywhere. And for whatever reason, like long suffering Texas Democrats have decided to kind of pop their heads over over the hole. Right. Although I think it's going to be sad when they lose. I will say also talking to Republican strategists in the state and and just Republican observers in the state, they are also noticing this and, and panicking a little. Right. Like they, somebody told me that um, he's a Republican strategist based in Austin and he was like, yeah, there's yard sign panic all of a sudden right. in the Republican Party because Beto signs are everywhere. Right. And uh, of course, I don't think that will do too much. Like signs don't vote, but— at the same time, it is a notable trend in the state. People always freak out about yard signs, man. <laughs> well, so I should say, you know, so yard signs is interesting because there was a, you know, people used to always put out yard signs. And then the Obama campaign in 2008, I think, came to the conclusion that yard signs were, were useless. Mm -hmm. And then the Clinton campaign in 2016 really, like, doubled down on this new anti-yard sign conventional wisdom. And they, like, barely put out any yard signs and interesting. stuff. Interesting. And now there was a whole new literature that says that no, like, yard signs actually make a huge difference I feel in voting like, outcomes. I, I feel like being in New Hampshire, like being from New Hampshire and living in the state for a long time, it's just like yard sign fatigue every sure. two years. There's <laughs> but, so many of them. But that's the thing, right? So, like, in a, in a conventional race, like, both sides have a lot of yard signs, in which case, like, you know, you don't. It's not like having 1,007 yard signs as opposed to 998 makes you win. But, like, unilateral yard signing, I've been convinced, right. like, it turns things around. So they, they have to fear the Beto signs. I also understand why someone like Beto would go full yard sign. Because, sure. I mean, his biggest problem this whole race is that nobody knew who he was. <laughs> um, and so he just has to get his name out. And Texas is a really big state, and you're not going to meet every single person driving around. Right. So— I, I get it. Fine. <laughs> it's it's what sense. you got. Okay, so I, I think we should take a break and then talk about, you know, the significance of this energy for some of the down-ballot races that are maybe more actually viable for Democrats. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash 
NAP. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So Texas, in addition to having the Senate campaign that has gotten a lot of hype, but that remains sort of heavily Republican-leaning. It's also just like a big state that is full of house races, right? Where, you know, having just like people involved at the top of the ticket might help, might not. Ella, I think you've you've reported on on some of these these races. And and we're talking, I guess, mostly in the in the suburbs of the big cities. Yes, right. Exactly. I mean so, so sort of similar to what you see elsewhere in the country, but Texas has a bunch of big cities. Yeah. So I think that their map has expanded, and honestly, I, I should probably check in with the DTRIP and, and the Texas Democratic Party to see just how much the map has expanded. But when I was reporting back in March, there were three key districts. They're hoping to unseat incumbents in, in these districts. There are also a few open seats that Democrats are hoping to, to take as well. But so the three big ones are the 7th Congressional District, which is a big area, a kind of suburb outside of Houston, the 32nd Congressional District, which is, again, a, a suburb outside of Dallas, and then the 23rd Congressional District, which is sort of the San Antonio area. It's this huge district on, on Texas's western side, and it encompasses a big part of the border. And that's the one where the incumbent is Will Hurd, who is sort of this young, moderate Republican, um, African-American, used to work in the CIA. I mean, I think that the conventional wisdom is that's the one that's kind of flipped the most from Democrat to Republican over the years. So that's the one that Democrats kind of have the best shot of winning back. So in all of these three districts, there are young people of color running uh, on the Democratic side. So in the 23rd Congressional District, we have Gina Ortiz-Jones, who is uh, Filipina, LGBT, a veteran, I think used to work in the Obama administration. In the the district outside of Dallas, we have Colin Allred, who is a former NFL player, which mm-hmm. is is great in, in Texas, which loves football, um, and also a civil rights attorney, <laughs> um, African-American. And then in uh, the suburb outside Houston, uh, Lizzie Panel Fletcher, who is uh, a longtime attorney in Houston, is, is running against John Culberson. And then, of course, there is MJ Hagar, I think, in Texas 31, who is another young female veteran. So there are a lot of, you know, like young, dynamic, diverse candidates running. And and the other thing is that, again, as we were sort of speaking to, like, the enthusiasm for people to run in Texas, I mean, Donald Trump, like elsewhere in the country, definitely spurred something for Democrats in Texas, where for the first time in— 25 years, there were candidates running in all 36 of the state's congressional districts. So that just speaks to the energy there. And this counts. I mean, the the, the Colin Allred seat in particular, right, this was the one that 
Clinton, actually, she narrowly won the district. Well, all three of these are the ones that Clinton narrowly won. Right. So that's why they're at the top of the but, list. But, but, I mean, Democrats literally didn't have a candidate in that House seat in 2016. Right. So it's like to have quality candidates, who I think all these people are. And, you know, and even someone, I, I think we finally got a poll out of the race. Uh, MJ Hagar's running in um, and she's like losing terribly because it's actually a very, very red district. But like she's a good candidate, right? It's like for the first time they have a sort of an embarrassment of riches to an extent, right? Like they have some good candidates just running in districts that are hard to win. Um, and in the districts that they might win, like they also have good candidates. Right. And during the primaries, it was like fields of like seven candidates running. Like you said, this like incredible like number of people that were stepping up to compete for the nomination. You've also had, I mean, to give credit, like Heard in particular, I think like on paper seemed like incredibly, incredibly vulnerable, uh, but has held up sort of decently by, I don't know, like being a good candidate himself. Yeah, uh, like, he's, he's among this kind of moderate Republican class that's actually not too hated by by his district. Right. But it has also benefited from the fact that, you know, we were talking about sort of enthusiasm and also traditional low turnout in Texas. But what's interesting is that Democrats have sort of looked at charts of Texas for years and sort of said, like, look, if we could mobilize the Latino population, like we could make, you know, incredible gains here. And now they have sort of mobilization like they hadn't had before. Uh, but it, when you look even just at the at the swing, right, like where did Hillary gain ground in 2016 versus where Obama had been against Romney, it was actually primarily in those suburban districts like the 7th and, and north of Dallas rather than in the Rio Grande Valley where Heard is running. And it's sort of an issue Democrats have in a couple California seats as well that like the the backlash to Trump isn't located exactly where people had maybe like thought it would be, right? I mean, right. We, we, we talked about women last week, and it's like college-educated women have been like the epicenter of Trump resistance. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that that, you know, like back in March, I think that if you talk to Democrats in Texas, certainly, or, or just political observers in Texas, they would say that Heard's big border district was the most likeliest to flip just because historically it's been the most likeliest to flip. But no, I, I think you're right. I mean, in, in Texas and around the country, you know, Democrats are looking at these suburban districts where it is a lot of, you know, sort of moderate, maybe independent or moderate Republican voters that, you know, voted for Mitt Romney in the past and and maybe kind of held their nose and voted for Trump in 2016. But really, you know, especially among women, and we're seeing poll after poll showing this huge gap. I mean, CNN had this poll yesterday showing, you know, women that they had polled much, you know, it was like 63 to 33 percent saying that they were going to vote for the Democratic candidate compared to, you know, 45 percent of men saying that they were more likely to vote for the Republican candidate. So women across the country are driving Democratic enthusiasm and, and favorability gains for Democrats. And it, it, Democrats in particular really are looking to these suburban districts to see if they can win over, you know, kind of moderate women who hate Donald Trump and right. want to do something <laughs> about it. Okay, so even further down, there is the state legislature. Right. And I think it's almost more attainable 
in a way where, so because there's so much enthusiasm for Beto O'Rourke at the top of the ticket, a lot of Republicans are worried that's and that energy is going to go all the way down the ballot, either because in Texas you can you can vote straight down the ballot, so they might just tick Democrat and everybody will go for them, or even Beto might make Republicans reconsider and and go down the ballot themselves. So of course Texas is is very strongly Republican controlled. They have super majorities in both of the state house chambers and they control the governor's mansion. But at the same time, there are three state Senate seats that are viable for Democrats to win back. And if they do that, then Democrats win some veto power in the state. And also in the state house, um, the House Speaker, Joe Strauss, who's kind of this like dying breed of moderate Republican and the state is retiring. Mm -hmm. And so the state is going to have this speaker race uh, in the state house. And there are 10 or so seats in the state house that Democrats could win. And they're never going to get the majority in the state house. But depending on how many seats they win there, they could gain more kind of bargaining power to get a more moderate speaker in the state house. And that was how Strauss came in as speaker, right? Was he... He's a Republican, but he got in over a more conservative Republican, basically with the votes of Democrats. Right, exactly. And uh, yeah, and it's it's probably Democrats' biggest fear in the state to have a more conservative state House uh, speaker. I mean, Strauss stopped a lot of really conservative legislation from going through, like the bathroom bill, for example. And so there is this – there's a lot of room for Democrats to have more – bargaining power and to prevent Texas from going completely conservative in the coming years on the state level. But yeah, that doesn't actually sound as exciting as like awesome. Better work. Better work. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's more but it's like but it's actually more important. <laughs> no, right. But I mean that <laughs> I'm always on the state legislature train. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, not, just, it's not as like a sexy of a topic as the the Senate seat, but, but uh, no, but but yeah, like, that's why the top of the ticket matters, right? Because like actually, something tedious, like do Republicans have a super majority in the state Senate or just a regular majority, has like a lot of impact on people's lives. Right. But I think that doesn't necessarily like get people like out of bed in the morning. Right. Whereas like taking on like comically evil Ted Cruz is. Is exciting, right. but like might get you to vote for your state senate right. race. But I mean, for Democrats, if the, if they can get their voters to to vote because of comically evil Ted Cruz, then they can set themselves up for success down the ballot. So Ted Cruz is he is as tough as Texas. Yeah, <laughs> that ad, that Richard Linklater ad, was so good. <laughs> I mean, I mean, <laughs> so I thought this is an ad. It was just really making fun of Ted Cruz because. Ted Cruz, once upon a time, was running as, like, the true conservative alternative to Donald Trump. Right. Right. And, like, I mean, it, it feels like a million years ago, but he, like, what did he do? Like Donald he, Trump really beat him up. Like, he called his, I think he, he called his, some, his wife, like, unattractive. Yeah. And uh, he— He called him Lion Ted. He called him Lion yes. Ted. Um, he really went after Ted— every possible way. And then Ted didn't really endorse him and then ended up endorsing him and now is, like, a huge Trump supporter. But, like, he went to the Republican National Convention and refused to endorse Trump and told everyone you have to vote your conscience. Yeah. And got booed by the crowd. And it almost seemed like Ted Cruz was going to be, 
like the a, resistance. Like a courageous figure, <laughs> right? And then at the insistence of his donors, he like endorsed him late in the campaign. For judicial nominees. Right. Well, I mean, you gotta remember, I mean, like all everything that happened in 2016 happened in the context of people assuming Trump was gonna lose. Right. Right. Yeah. But then he won, you know, so that changed everything. But most of the, like, anti-Trump Republican senators, like, only humiliatingly started groveling before Trump, after Trump actually won. But Cruz started early after and gone after him and also after after Trump being such a, like, jackass to him. Right. Yeah. So there was an ad for Beto O'Rourke that was basically poking fun at the idea that Tex- uh, that Ted is too tough for Texas because he couldn't stand up for, for himself and yeah. his wife. Somebody left something on my door the other day. Is it Ted Cruz, toughest Texas? <laughs> I mean, come on. If somebody called my wife a dog and said my daddy was in on the Kennedy assassination, I wouldn't be kissing their ass. But also, I mean, I think, like, the biggest criticism of Cruz that you used to hear from Republican senators, right, was that, like, Ted Cruz wanted people to think that, like, he was so much more conservative than, like, all the regular Republican senators. But that actually what was happening was that he was pulling pointless stunts to advance his own name. Right. Like right. that's like like that's why like it was Lindsey Graham at one point was like if you murdered Ted Cruz, yeah. nobody would prosecute it, you it or was something. Like if you killed Ted Cruz on the Senate floor, the Senate would not prosecute you. It was like right. something ridiculous. And like that wasn't really because Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham had like big disagreements on issues. No, it was just it was Ted Cruz was kind of this like conservative, like he did did these like theatrical conservative stunts. Right. And it drove people nuts. And and everybody's understanding because like there's other very conservative senators, right? Like you have like your James Inhofe's and whatnot, right? Right. They're just quieter about it. Well, and they're more I think they're more effective, right? Like really well informed conservatives didn't look at Ted Cruz's theatrics. And say, like, this guy is really advancing our cause. Right. right? This was like Ted Cruz was trying to get elected president. Right. And so it, like, really pissed off his coworkers. And this, like, back and forth with the Trump with, like, he's completely amoral to, like, I'm Trump's best friend is, like, the same thing. It's just like a— ambitious guy in a kind of I mean there's nothing really wrong with politicians being ambitious but also people don't like right. it. And, and the results of this I think is twofold like one in the state of Texas people know exactly how they feel about Ted Cruz like there's <laughs> no like eh, I'm not sure you either really like him or you really hate him and in this past year the other the side of this is that Ted Cruz has been a lot quieter, mostly out of a function because Trump is president and it's hard to kind of out-Trump Trump. But he's also kind of played that inside game a little more. And I think that's why Republicans in the Senate are even willing to kind of come out for him at this point. Sure. And, and it was an important play on his part where he realized, all right, I need a little bit more help here. I need to be a team player. I need to be a team player. Like, it's not it's not often that you see Ted Cruz and Dianne Feinstein, like, working together on a bill. Right. And that happened this year. Right. So. I mean, he's tried to become, like, if people don't remember, this was, like, back in 2014, right? Like, Ted Cruz pretty much personally engineered this, like, brief government shutdown right. over yes. the Affordable Care Act. He read green eggs and ham on the Senate floor. And we haven't seen that, right? It, like, everything that's been sort of contentious 
inside the Republican caucus, he's been, like, not involved with. Right. Right? Like, on either way. Like, right. he's, he's trying to make people like him. Right. Like, Hurricane Harvey, like, he was all over that. Like, that was when he was trying to make a name for himself. It was very clear that he was trying to play to his state, be a team player in the Senate, not make a lot of noise. Um, and it's—I mean, he knew he lost, basically. Right. The new sort of mellow Ted Cruz yeah. is the— <laughs> I don't know if I'd call him mellow, but <laughs> if anyone could ever call Ted Cruz mellow. It's different. <laughs> well, but you know, right? So, like, he's not the way he campaigned in the primary would suggest that, like, when Trump starts messing around with trade, that maybe Ted Cruz would be a defender of like free trade orthodoxy and would take the White House on. Right. But like, he hasn't really done that, no. right? Or the way he did a lot of other stuff would be he might be, like, leading the charge to, like, shut the government down because we got to build the wall. Right. But, like, he's not doing that either. No. Right? So it's like even in polarized times, it's like there are things Republicans disagree about. And, like, Ted Cruz used to be the guy who was, like, if there was going to be a fight, he was going to, like, pick a side in the fight and, like, make sure everyone was paying attention to him. Right. And now it's, like, the opposite, right? He wants people to pay attention to his hurricane work. Exactly. Whether that has actually ingratiated itself on on the voters remains to be seen. It definitely has helped in for his his rep in Washington, right. I think. Well, and also just like the brute reality that I think Republicans have realized, like, they actually might lose this race. Right. And they really don't want to. Right. You can have your feelings about your fellow members. But like when it comes time to like contest control, it's like— Mitch McConnell today was, like, shutting down all these complaints about Lisa Murkowski. Yeah. Right? Yes. Because, like, last week, I bet he was super annoyed with Lisa Murkowski. Yes. But, like, now he wants a majority in the Senate. Right. He doesn't want Lisa Murkowski to become a Democrat. <laughs> right. So, okay. So, let's just, before we close out, like, where does this race actually stand? It's Cruz is up. Cruz is up. The polls kind of, they got very tight a month ago, and they've kind of winded out again. So, it is not out of the realm of possibility, that Better Work could win, but it is unlikely that Better Work would win. <laughs> I guess we should say, right, the other piece of context for this, right, is that the 2018 Senate map is really, really bad for Democrats, right? Unlike, yes. you know, in the House, it's like there's a bunch of districts where you're just looking at it. You're like, yeah, a Democrat could win here, right? So, you know, you give it your shot. You look at the Senate map and it's really not like that, right? Like Nevada and Arizona are both like, sure. Maybe a Democrat Maybe. could win. Could yeah, win. and I think Nevada more so than Arizona. Right, but like those are those are good places to go, right? But then you look beyond that, and it's nothing. The pickup opportunities, very long shot pickup opportunities. If Democrats hold all their red states, which eh, then the other pickup opportunities are Texas, Tennessee, and Mississippi? Right. Question mark. And really, <laughs> right. And in in Tennessee, you know, they have a candidate, Phil Bradison. He's a good recruit, but is like a old-time blue dog Democrat from the aughts. So he's not somebody who people would get excited about. And so, like, part of the Texas enthusiasm, right, is in a different map when you had, like, seven plausible pickup opportunities, people might not be, like, so interested in this long shot. But, like, while it's a super long shot, it's also sort of the best you can do. But at the same time, the fact that a Democrat is only within six points of an incumbent Republican in Texas is, that's, I mean, that's something to be talked about. It is. It is. No, right. I mean, it's definitely an interesting political, but I mean, I've seen a lot of, like, second guessing online of, like, why are people giving all this money to better work, right? And, like, but, like, the reason they're giving all this money to him 
is that it's kind of close. And also, like, where else are you going to put it? Yeah. Like, like, it's all well and good to say, like, oh, Tennessee. But, like, O'Rourke has a campaign that is, like, meant to appeal to a national right, audience national, yeah, of, like, yeah. fired up. Right. Yeah. And I mean, Democrat. he's he is testing this theory. It's kind of like we do have these two different case studies. It's like Tennessee, you know, yeah, Bredesen is running as this super moderate blue dog dem. I mean, he came out and was like, I would vote for Kavanaugh if I was in the Senate last week. Right. And Beto O'Rourke is testing this completely other theory by appealing to the Democratic base. So we, we're going to have these two kind of like case studies in 2018. Right. And maybe all these donors are super amped about the state house races. Yes, that's it. They are <laughs> out of state donors are pouring money in because they're really concerned about who has a supermajority in the state senate. Yeah. Um, but see, you who have listened to the weeds, you are now woke, you are hip to what the real stakes are here. Joe Strauss's successor, supermajority in the state senate, a couple suburban house races. Maybe, maybe the Senate. So thanks a lot, Alan Tara, for uh, breaking that all down for us. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Griffin Tanner. And the weeds will return on Friday.